This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. Our scripture reading today is Matthew 12, verses 15 through 37. So if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to use one in the back of the pew, and if you don't have one at home, you're welcome to take one of those as our gift to you today. Again, Matthew 12, verses 15 through 37. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant who I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Adrian. How is everybody? Good to see you this morning. Glad you're here. My name's Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here at Park. 
Uh, and I want to encourage you, if you would, hold your copy of the scriptures, if it's on your phone or actually in a Bible, hold that open to uh, Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be spending a lot of time there just going verse by verse through the passage. Uh, let me tell you how we're going to approach it. This week as I was <clears throat> preparing for today, I realized, I, I just had this feeling that the best way to do this would be to, to walk through that entire, there's some heavy stuff in there. Uh, so I feel like it'd probably be appropriate uh, to go through it all and explain what I can uh, and then do the application at the end, which is a little different than I would normally do that. But uh, so I'm going to ask if you would just have your Bible open, walk through it. We'll go verse by verse, uh, try and explain some of those tougher uh, issues in the text, and then we'll make some application at the end. Sound okay? Ready to do this? All right, great. Let's, uh, let's pray. As I said, there's some, some heavy stuff in this passage of Scripture um, and so I, I want us just to take a moment, if we would, let's just be still, let's be quiet, let's breathe, <laughs> let's calm our hearts, calm our minds, and ask for the Spirit we were just singing to, asking Him to come. He's here, we know He's here, but we want Him to do more than be, just be here. We want Him to move, we want Him to speak, we want to hear from Him. And so let's pray and ask for Him to move and speak to us individually today, and then uh, uh, corporately as a church, right? So let's have a moment. Let's be quiet still before God, and then we'll pray. Father God, we have come here today to worship you. We've, we've come here today to not hear from a person. <clears throat> Father God, we want to hear from you. And so Spirit, would you speak to us today? We know you're here. We are thankful that as the people of God, we are God's temple and that you indwell us individually and corporately as a church. But Spirit, we want to hear from you. We didn't come here today to be entertained. There's so many other places we could go to do that today. God, we, we've come here today to hear you speak, to transform us. And so God, I ask that you would move, that you would speak, that you would do your work in us today. We do not want to be the same people we were when we walked in. <clears throat> so meet with us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So something I've been hearing a lot about lately is the concept of uh, confirmation bias. Uh, and most definitions of confirmation bias go something like this. Uh, confirmation bias is the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that confirms and supports one's prior beliefs or values. Okay, now let me just paraphrase that. In other words, Someone who's practicing confirmation bias will primarily listen to the news outlet that they already agree with. Now, I know nobody in this room would do that, but I've heard people do that, <laughs> right? So for you, it might be CNN, for you, it might be Fox, it might be MSNBC, and then whatever else other internet options there are out there. I literally walked into somebody's house a number of years ago and they had a plasma TV. And one of the logos of one of those news stations I mentioned was burnt into the plasma, which kind of tells you where they were biased. 
I'm not going to tell you which one it was, but it was named after a furry little animal. Anyway, <laughs> so, so they'll pursue those, or, and they'll only accept and cite the research that aligns with their opinions or their beliefs and only seek the advice from the experts, right, that will tell them what they already believe and want to hear. Now, this isn't a new phenomenon, okay? This isn't just within the last couple of years. Since the fall in the garden back in Genesis chapter 3, this has been a part of the human condition. This is a part of being human. But it does seem like with the advancement of the internet, the 24-hour news cycle, and the continued influence and expansion of social media uh, in our lives, it's becoming more and more of an issue that needs to be addressed. I read an article by a woman named Kendra Cherry. She wrote an article, How Confirmation Bias Works. Um, And she gives an example. This is what confirmation bias looks like. Uh, She says, Consider the debate over gun control. Nothing like a non-controversial issue, right? Um, Consider the debate over gun control. Let's say Sally is in support of gun control. So she seeks out news stories and opinion pieces that reaffirm the need for limitations on gun ownership. When she hears stories about shootings in the media, she interprets them in a way that supports her existing beliefs. Then you have Henry, like these are the most stereotypical names, Sally and Henry, all right. Um, Henry, on the other hand, is adamantly opposed to gun control. So what does he do? He seeks out news sources that are aligned with his position. And when he comes across news stories about shootings, he interprets them in a way that supports his current point of view. She goes on to say, these two people have very different opinions on the same subject and their interpretations are based on their beliefs. Even if they read the same story, their bias tends to shape the way they perceive the details, further confirming their beliefs. And of course, we see this idea of confirmation bias at play in pretty much every area of life in our world today, right? Um, I'll narrow it down a little bit, politics, political candidates, how we view our view on masks, right? Uh, Our view on the COVID vaccine. And all this leads to stereotypes, really furthering stereotypes, prejudice. And it's actually, if you go back and study history, this is an amazing reality. It has been one of the leading causes of wars where thousands and thousands of people have died It's a psychological reality that can have obviously serious consequences in our personal lives and the world around us. Now, you're probably asking, what does that have to do with Matthew chapter 12? I'm glad you asked. Look at your Bible. Here we go. Look at Matthew chapter 12. We're going to break it up in three sections. We'll start here, verse 15, go to verse 22. And I just want to read through. We'll do some explanation. And then we'll do some application. Here we go, verse 15. Jesus aware of this. Now, what is the this he's aware of? Look back up at verse 14. But the Pharisees went out, conspired against him how to destroy him. You'll see, we'll talk a little bit about it later. They were so upset that Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath day which was breaking kind of their, their way of understanding 
Sabbath observation. They were so upset with him that they wanted to kill him or destroy him. Verse 15 again, and many followed him and he healed them all. Anyone who needed healing, he healed them and ordered them not to make him known. Here he is again. Jesus is not out there, you know, with a bullhorn. He's not out there trying to build his platform, right? He's not out there using the algorithms to, to elevate himself, exalt himself. He came to humbly love. He came to humbly serve. There is gonna be a time where he is exalted, but it's gonna be exaltation on a cross. Until then, he's going about his business when you quietly love and serve and heal as many people as possible. And then verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Now, what does that this refer to? It refers back to 16, where it says, he ordered them not to make him known. So the quote here, you look in verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. That's referring back to Isaiah 42. If you go back and read it, you're gonna see it's not an exact quote. It's a little more of a paraphrase, but it's gonna show you the kind of Messiah that they should have been anticipating. The one they should have been looking for. And what you're gonna see is he's very different than what they were hoping for and hoping and longing a Messiah to be. Well, what kind of Messiah would he be? Keep going, look at verse 18. Behold, this is God speaking. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. If you remember back to Jesus' baptism, end of John 3, that's, that's exactly what the voice from heaven, God the Father said over Jesus as he came up out of the water. He said, I will put my spirit upon him. So, so the Messiah is gonna be one who is indwelled and empowered by the spirit of God. That everything he did as he was inaugurating the kingdom of God on earth was gonna be empowered by the spirit of God. Keep going. And that's, and I will say that's really, really, really important for the section we're going to look at next. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, right? So his kingdom that was being inaugurated was a kingdom of justice. And eventually that justice will, uh, uh, will take over the whole entire world. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, right? He's not going to be loud. He's not going to be boisterous. He's not coming to argue. He's not coming to fight. So different than the culture we live in nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's not on the corner with a bullhorn, shouting and screaming at everybody. A bruised reed he will not break. The idea there is a reed is something very, very fragile and it's already saying it's already bruised. It wouldn't take anything for it to break. And so you see a very gentle, right? Humble Messiah coming and, and not ostracizing or pushing aside the weak. He's actually gonna love, he's gonna care for. And then it says, in a smoldering wick, he will not quench, right? The, the point of a wick is to burn so the lamp can burn, be bright. If a smoldering wick is smoldering, you want to get rid of it so you can have more light from the lamp, right? Especially in a, in a world where there's no electricity. And Jesus is saying, or it's, this is being said about Jesus that when he comes, he's not going to just push the weak aside. He's not going to just get rid of one and, and get the strong and only go for the strong and the powerful. He's going to care for the bruised and the smoldering, the weak, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, right, in his name, that refers to the, the whole character of who he is. Everything about him 
The Gentiles will hope. And man, you got to believe the Pharisees didn't like that part. That little piece about the Gentiles, because their understanding was that when the Messiah comes, he's coming only for Israel. So let me summarize. The kind of Messiah was to be, he will proclaim and bring justice to the earth. He'll be quiet and humble, not a loud demagogue. He'll be gentle to the weak and the bruised. His salvation will reach Israel and all the nations. Now this, this right here, is where we see confirmation bias in the thinking of the Pharisees. They had just seen Jesus heal a man with a withered hand. You can see that again back up in verse 10 through 14. And rather than celebrate the miracle that had just happened, this amazing thing that only God could do that was by the power of the Spirit, rather than celebrate what happened right there in front of their eyes, they were so enraged that, that Jesus didn't live up to their expectations, their biases, especially around Sabbath law and Sabbath keeping, that they began to plot to, to how to kill him. And we've seen this over and over again in Matthew's gospel. Because of their bias and the hardness of their hearts, Jesus not being the kind of Messiah they were anticipating. They were looking for a military leader. They were looking for a king who would come and overthrow through might and, and bloodshed. That's what they expected. And to bring the kingdom of God only for Israel rather than considering that maybe their view of the Messiah was wrong, right? Maybe their expectations were off. They allowed their bias to cause them to reject him as the Messiah. That shows you the consequences that ha can happen when we have our biases. Keep going. Verse 22. You're going to see another example of this. Verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Now, of all the miracles in Matthew's gospel, this gives us the least amount of details. All we know is somebody was blind and couldn't speak, right? So Jesus heals him. Doesn't say how he did it. Didn't say any, any of the means in which he did it. Just says he was healed. So that lets us know the point isn't necessarily the miracle here in this text. The point isn't the miracle. The point is how the Pharisees responded to the miracle. And then what Jesus said about that. So keep going. And all the people were amazed, right? You're going to see a contrast between the crowd, the people, and then the Pharisees. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? It, that's another way of saying, is he the Messiah? Is he the one that we've been longing for? The one who's going to come through the family line of David? Is this possibly the one. Why? Because he's doing all the things that the Old Testament prophets said he would do. Could this be the one? But when the Pharisees heard it, they had a different opinion. Look what they say. It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. That's another name for Satan. Okay, so stop right here for a second. How biased do you have to be to attribute a miracle, a good thing being done in the world, to Satan, to the power of Satan? He's basically accusing Jesus 
of being involved in witchcraft, which according to Old Testament law, right, would have been reason for capital punishment. Now, notice Jesus' response here, all right? And I could just paraphrase it with this. That's stupid, right? Like, that's the message paraphrase. Stupid, like they could have saved a lot of ink and paper if, if that was all it was. But look at how Jesus responds. He's gonna show them your reasoning makes no sense. All right, it doesn't, it's not logical that Satan would be casting out demonic forces. Somebody says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. It doesn't make sense. A kingdom against its own, itself, it's gonna fall apart. Family, fall apart. House, fall apart. It doesn't make sense. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Like, duh, this doesn't make sense. Satan's too smart for that. He's not gonna cast himself out, defeating himself and defeating his own kingdom. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Because there, there are accounts of disciples of the Pharisees casting out demons themselves. So Jesus flips it on them. Oh, are they doing it by the power of Satan as well? Right? Keep going, look what he says. Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it's by the power of the Spirit of God, and here he's saying, that's what it is. I'm doing this by the power of the Spirit. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And how sad is it that the, the kingdom they've been longing for, for generation after generation after generation, has arrived. Why? Because the king had arrived. The Messiah had arrived, and by the power of the Spirit, he's inaugurating, he's ushering in this kingdom on earth, and he's doing it right in front of them. And they can't even see it. Why? Because of the hardness of their heart and their bias. They can't see it. So notice they're not like rejecting the fact that there was a miracle. They couldn't deny that. So they had to attribute the power somewhere else rather than to the source of the power, which leads to a really, really uh, hard response by Jesus. Keep going. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? So he's saying, this is what I'm doing. I'm entering into the strong man, Satan's house, and I'm setting the captives free. The people you've had in bondage, I'm setting them free. And he can't do that unless he first binds the strong man, the strong man there, Satan. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Isn't that beautiful imagery of what Jesus came to do? Plundering the house of Satan. I love that. What Satan thought was his house. It was actually God's, but he let him go for a while. And then he let him, no, I'm king. Here I am. Get out of the way, right? Like I'm, I'm taking over now. Whoever is not with me is against me. Oh man. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, and this is where it gets heavy. Listen. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. So every kind of sin, every kind of blasphemy can be forgiven people except for one sin. 
but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. You're attributing the work of the spirit to Satan that shows you how far your hearts have gone. It shows you how hard your hearts are towards the kingdom and the work of God. Keep going. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man, again, that's Jesus. So you can actually speak against Christ. You can blaspheme Jesus. I know this sounds crazy in a Christian church. That will be forgiven. And whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. You can speak against Jesus, you can be forgiven. You speak against the Spirit, you you reject the power of the Spirit, you can't be forgiven. Look at this, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, why is that? And I, I want to relieve some tension because I feel it in the room right now. Oh no, have I done this? What's, what's Jesus getting at? Well, we know from the rest of scripture that the only way anyone comes to repentance and faith in Christ is through the working, the power of the spirit. And if you continue to reject the working and the power of the spirit, as he's wanting to woo you and draw you to Christ, uh, cause you to repent of your sin and turn to faith by faith in Christ, receive forgiveness, receive eternal life. There is nothing that can be done for you. Because at the end of the day, what we all need is forgiveness. What we all need is God's grace in Christ. We all need to have our sins atoned for and washed away so we can be brought into right relationship with God. And that only happens through Jesus. And our knowledge of that need and that awareness comes by the power of the Spirit of God. And if you continue to reject that power, that one, then there is no forgiveness for that. Well, we'll talk more about that in a minute. And then... Verse 33, he explains the problem. The problem isn't so much the words they were saying. It was where the words were coming from. So we're not necessarily condemned by our words. We're condemned by the condition of our hearts, which is who we truly are. But it's our words that reveal who we really are in our hearts. Where do we get that? Keep reading. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Good trees will produce good fruit. Bad trees will produce bad fruit. You brood of vipers, you snakes, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth Speak. So who you truly, truly are. When the Bible talks about the heart, he's talking about the center of a person. That's who you truly are. And what comes out of there is going to come out of your mouth. One of the ways you know kind of what's going on inside is by what comes out of your mouth, your words. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of this evil treasure brings forth evil. Good heart, good, evil heart, bad. I tell you on the day of judgment, and this is heavy, 
On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. So, and this is Jesus speaking here, right? So the day of judgment is the day that when Christ returns and nobody knows when that is. If someone starts giving you dates, run, okay? Like Jesus said, nobody knows when I'm gonna return, but there is a day he is gonna return. That's called the judgment day. And in that moment, everyone will stand before God and give an account of their life. It, down to the very words that we've said. It all matters. Why? Because it reveals who we really are. And what does he say about that? On that day, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Even the careless little flippant things we say. For by your words, you'll be justified. And by your words, you'll be condemned. What's he getting at? Your words will be brought into that courtroom before God and will give evidence to whether or not you've truly been born again. Your words will justify, declare you righteous, right? Or condemn you. Whew. We'll come back to that in a minute, that's heavy. Now, what do we do with all of that? There's a lot of applications we could make. Let me just give you a few. The first one is this. If you're worried about whether or not you've committed this unpardonable sin, you haven't. All right? right? If, if, if you're like, oh no, I wonder if I've done that. You haven't. But still take his word seriously. And why do I say it that way? Because remember, the unpardonable sin is the ongoing, deliberate rejection of the work of the Spirit in your heart, in your life. A person that is concerned about whether or not they've committed that sin is revealing that their heart is still sensitive to the things of God because they actually care, which proves the Spirit is still at work in your life. Hear this, Christian. This is not a sin that a true follower of Jesus can commit. Okay, you've been born again. You have a new heart that loves God. The spirit indwells you. Let me say it one more time. This is not a sin that a true follower of Jesus can commit. Let me give you a couple of, I think, helpful quotes to get a better handle on this. One by James Boyce, one by D.A. Carson. Boyce says this, these are frightening words and they should be, they are intended to be, right? I think we want to attribute to Jesus all the nice, soft, kind of meek and gentle and lowly things, and that's awesome, that's who he is. But man, he also says, says some kind of scary stuff too. And this is one of those. These are frightening words, they're intended to be, but they have also been unnecessarily alarming for some people. Most ministers have had people come to them wondering if they have committed the unforgivable sin when they have done nothing of the sort. I've had people come to me and ask that question. In fact, here he says it, the fear that they might have sinned unforgivably, unforgivably is the best possible proof that they have not. Another one, Carson. The distinction between blasphemy against the Son of Man and blasphemy against the Spirit is not that the Son of Man is less important than the Spirit, which could be kind of an obvious conclusion. It seems obvious, right? Well, if you can be forgiven the blasphemy against Jesus, 
but you can't be forgiven blasphemy against the spirit, then the spirit must be more important. The spirit must be more valuable. It's not that. Instead, within the context of the larger argument that from this text, the first sin, blasphemy against the Son of Man, is rejection of the truth of the gospel. And there may be repentance and forgiveness for that, right? Like, think about it. Go back to how many of, how many people, in a sense, denied Jesus, didn't know fully who Jesus was until after the resurrection. How about a guy named Peter, right? For, before Jesus was arrested, hey, I'm gonna go with you to the, I'll go with you all the way. And Jesus is like, no, you're not. You're gonna deny me three times before that rooster crows, dude. Like, forget it. Stop it. And then what happened after the resurrection? This bold beast for Jesus, right? He, he evangelized, planted churches, and was, according to church history, not willing to be crucified like his Lord. So he requested to be crucified upside down, right? That is a beast right there. Something happened. Yeah, he actually really believed that Jesus was the Savior, right? So he was forgiven for not fully getting it initially. How about all of Jesus' family? They all thought he was crazy. They thought he was insane. What happened after the resurrection? They all believed. Thomas, same thing. All the rest of the disciples, same thing. So, so not everybody understood who Jesus was. By the way, we see in the text, he was like, hey, don't let people know, like keep this, keep this under wraps, don't make me known. So in some ways he was purposely veiling who he was for a while. So it's understandable that people didn't fully get it until after the resurrection. But notice this, whereas the second sin, that's a sin against the spirit, is rejection of the same truth in full awareness that this is what exactly what one is doing, thoughtfully, willfully, and self-consciously rejecting the work of the Spirit, even though there could have been no other explanation of Jesus' exorcism than that it was the power of the Spirit of God. Now, what I do not want to do is somehow lessen the severity of Jesus' words in this passage. I think we could swing the pendulum too far and it could lose its impact. It is the working of the spirit in a person's heart that causes them to repent of their sins and turn to Jesus for forgiveness and salvation. But, but if a person continually rejects that conviction of the spirit, there is no guarantee that the spirit will continue to work on that person's heart. And when or if that happens, then a person is without hope. We don't come to Christ apart from the work of the spirit. So if you've entered this building today as a non-believer, maybe a skeptic you'd even say, but better sensing this need to turn to Jesus and believe today, don't wait. Believe now, turn to Jesus now. Why? Because there's no guarantee that you'll have another chance. Number two, another application. In what ways is your confirmation bias regarding Jesus impacting what you believe and how you live? So we all have it and we all view Jesus through certain lenses 
So let me say it again. In what ways is our, your confirmation, confirmation bias, my confirmation bias regarding Jesus impacting what you believe about him and how you live? We all lean towards confirmation bias. It's part of the human condition. We all have thoughts and opinions about Jesus that we back up with verses from the Bible. We all can do that. None of, none of us have a perfectly balanced view of Jesus, myself included. I'm going to show you my weakness in just a minute. We, we all emphasize particular aspects of Jesus' character and then de-emphasize, not necessarily deny, but de-emphasize the other ones. All right, so let me just step on some toes here and get real specific what we're talking about, okay? We do this because we want to be helped, all right? First, Maybe your bias when you think about Jesus is that Jesus is meek and lowly. And is he? Yes, he is meek and lowly. Scripture tells us that. We actually see it in the passage today, quoting Isaiah 42. Yes, that's the kind of Messiah he is. But what that can do is that can tend to cause us maybe, I'm just saying this may be some possibilities, could cause us to be quiet and not vocal when we are also called to speak up regarding the gospel and God's truth. This bias could keep us from being advocates for the needy and the marginalized. And it could hold us, uh, uh, keep us back from, in a sense, seeking justice for people who need justice, all in the name of being meek and lowly. Those could be some consequences if that is our bias when we think about Jesus. Another one, this might be your bias and it's not a bad one, it's good. Like Jesus is absolutely holy. How many of you would say amen to that? Yeah, Jesus is 100% God. He is absolutely perfectly holy. If he is not, we have no hope. He has to be holy or he's not God and we have no hope. Yes, but if that's the way you think about it, he's only holy, then we might have a hard time really believing that he doesn't hold our sin against us. Maybe this keeps us from a close, intimate relationship with him because we constantly feel guilty because of how far we fall short of his holiness and his perfection, which we all do. Maybe that's what's happening when the primary way you view Jesus is through only his holiness. Let me give you another example. Maybe your bias is that Jesus is king and Lord. Which one do you think might be my bias? Yeah, there you go. That's the one. When I think of Jesus, I think of king. I think of Lord. I think of kingdom. I think of conqueror. I think of champion. Like I, I could go down the list. That's how I relate to Jesus. That's kind of my bias. But what might be some consequences of just thinking of Jesus that way? I might have a hard time relating to him as a friend and a brother. I, not might, I do. Or as a servant, as Isaiah referred to him in the passage that Matthew quotes, Matthew, or Isaiah 42, this can cause us to miss out on intimacy with him we can lose sight of the fact that God the Son took on flesh and humbled himself, became human so that he could live among us and empathize with us. If this is our bias, we might walk around like kings and lords rather than humble servants. 
there's consequences. It's a, I mean, again, it's true. He is king and Lord. He's more than that, though. Another one. This is one that drives me crazy. Just going to admit it. All right, there you go. Maybe this is kind of how you view Jesus. Jesus is returning to fix all that is wrong in the world, which is true. We believe that. So therefore, why bother trying to fix things now? Right? If Jesus is going to come and recreate the world someday, why bother working towards recreation now? Who cares? It's all going to burn anyway. I've actually heard people say that. It's all going to burn anyway. Don't worry about it. What? How do you get there? Well, Jesus is the only one who can ultimately fix it. And you're not Jesus. Duh. <laughs> right? Confirmation bias. And here's one for those maybe who are not yet believers. I believe Jesus was a good teacher and spiritual leader, but he's certainly not God. Which, if that's your opinion, you're right. He was a great teacher. He, he was an incredible spiritual leader. But he's also God. But if you don't go there, then you're never going to turn to him for forgiveness. And you're never going to turn to him for salvation. Because he's just a man. That's all he is. So what happens when we allow our bias to control our thinking Regarding the personal work of Jesus, it can absolutely affect our relationship with him and how we live as disciples in his world. The Pharisees, the disciples, the crowds all had confirmation bias in regards to Jesus. What makes us think it can't happen to us? So how do we fight it? Right? We, we know it's true. Like we have it, it's part of being human. How do we fight against it? There's, man, this is a whole other sermon, how you do that in other ways. I'm just talking about Jesus. How do you do that? How do, what do we do about that? One, I'm going to give you a couple ways. Immerse yourself in the Gospels. Read about Christ in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Face, eyes in the Bible. Let the Bible tell you who Jesus is, what he's like. And if you'll do that, you'll get that full or perspective. Like you'll need every, you'll get what you need to know about Jesus, what he is, what he's like. I would say this, especially if you're a non-Christian. Like, I know we as Christians are supposed to reflect Christ in the world, but we don't do that very well all the time. I know that's hard to imagine. Right? And some of you are like, well, I should know what Jesus is like because I go to church. And then you go to church and you're like, oh, shoot, never mind. Yeah, because we don't always do that perfectly. Get your eyes in the Gospels, read Matthew, go read another book. Read, come back to Mark, go read another book. Come back to, just be in the Gospels. Two, another one, spend time with others who have different biases than you, right? I, the Bible says iron sharpens iron. So those of you who are like, Jesus is King and Lord, right? Get with those. I'm not really like that, I don't, but anyway, a little exaggerated. When Joel's like, yeah, you are. Anyway, like, <laughs> Get with those who are like, Jesus is meek and lowly. And you guys like affect each other and help each other see a different view of Jesus. And you'll both be sharpened and you'll both have a more balanced view of Jesus. Hang out with Christians who, who have a different bias than you do and learn. And listen, we don't do that well anymore. I'm so sad to me 
the culture we live in, people are different, forget you, I can't hang out with you. No, that's not how it should be in the church. Three, pray that the spirit would, would reveal where your understanding of Jesus is incomplete. Jesus said, hey, it's better for me to go away because if I go away, I'm gonna send the comforter to you. He's gonna come, he's gonna indwell you. He's gonna lead you, he's gonna teach you, he's gonna guide you. He wants you to know Jesus. That's why he came, that's why the spirit is here, to help us know Jesus and empower us to live like Jesus in the world. So pray that the spirit would reveal where your understanding of Jesus is incomplete. And then the last one, I'll just do this really quick. Our words reveal why we need a savior. Can I get an amen? Thank you. I just wanna make sure I wasn't the only one. Our words reveal why we need a savior. Listen to the words of Jesus again, 36 and 37. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you'll be condemned. Our words reveal who we really are. Our words reveal our heart. Jesus said in verse 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Nobody can honestly say they haven't gossiped or slandered another person or exposed your greed through your words or just you've talked about things a follower of Jesus have no business talking about. I'm guilty of all of that and more. And so are you. Everyone has revealed the sinfulness of their own hearts through their words. And here's the scary part. If all we have on the day we stand before God and give an account of our lives is our words as our defense, we are hopeless. We're hopeless. No one can stand before God innocent based on our words. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Our words revealed our need of a savior. And thankfully, amen, there is a savior, Jesus Christ. Now the question is, what will you do with him? Will you turn to him in faith today? Have you already turned to him in faith? I pray to God you have. Will you receive his forgiveness and his righteousness so that on the day you stand before God and give an account, and listen, the one who said he would be arrested and crucified and killed and three days later rise from the dead and actually pulled it off is the one who said, you're gonna stand before me someday. So I'm gonna take his word on it. You can give me all your philosophy and we can talk and all that, but until you predict your death and resurrection and then pull it off, I'm not listening to you on this one. We can talk about all kinds of other things, but on this one, I'm listening to Jesus. So this is, this is a day, it's coming. You don't have to offer your best if you're in Christ. Which according to the scriptures, our best is like filthy rags compared to the holiness of God. The good news is this, if you are in Christ by faith, you are clothed in his righteousness and what you will offer is Jesus' best. Why should I let you into an eternal relationship with me? Why should you come into my new heavens and new earth? It's not my words, it's Jesus' righteousness. Jesus' best is the only hope you have for eternity with God. Trust him 
today. Believe it's true. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word. These have been challenging words, but God, they're true words. We need to hear your truth. We need to hear your word. You have divinely appointed that this day, the people that are here would hear what they needed to hear today. And so God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, we would respond in the ways that are appropriate for us, individually, personally. And so Spirit, would you continue to reveal to us what you're saying to us in this moment and give us the grace to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media, Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.